Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Several months ago, Amy and I had just finished a wonderful Friday evening with some, some wonderful dear friends of ours, and we were back home uh, getting, just getting ready for a good night's sleep. We were watching some television. It was right around midnight, and my first responder app went off. I have the honor of serving as the chaplain of the local fire department here, and so when there's an emergency call, it hits my phone so that I can know how to pray for these men and women as they respond to whatever emergency's there, and also so that if it's something particularly traumatic, I can be available in case I am needed. This call, however, indicated a large house fire. And when I saw the address, it brought me a little bit greater alarm. We live in a subdivision here in Shepherdstown called Colonial Hills. And right at my cul-de-sac, to the, to the right of me, if you step out my front door, there's another cul-de-sac. And then beyond that, there's a row of trees. And then beyond that, there's another subdivision where houses have gone up. That's where the fire was. And so the, it had also, just in addition, been particularly dry. It had been a little hotter than normal for this time of year. And the wind was blowing quite fiercely that night. So you take all those factors and you compound them together. And again, these firefighters are trained a lot better than I am. And so by the time I arrived on the scene about 1 o'clock the next morning just to check on them, they told me that's, it wasn't nearly as bad as you thought it was, Pastor. But have you ever seen something that looked worse than it was? This was one of those times. And so I stepped out my front door and I looked to my right and just beyond the tree line, I saw these huge flames, not only going up into the air from this house that was burning, but also blowing toward me. That doesn't always give you a good feeling. And so we didn't know exactly what all that meant, but we said, well, we need to get ourselves prepared. And we did a lot of things in order for that to happen. But let me tell you one of the first things we did. My wife and I got our shoes on. Then we got the kids up, and you know what we made them do? Put their shoes on. And they sat there until we were confident that the threat had subsided, and we did other things. But we did that first and foremost because we needed to be ready, if necessary, to leave, ready, if necessary, to wake up and warn our neighbors that were living right around us, ready, if necessary, to face the danger. Usually when you tell somebody in a hurried fashion to get your shoes on, that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about being prepared. So let me show you a text that we've been looking at in this series on spiritual warfare to remind us of the importance of that level of vigilance. It's found in 1 Peter 5, 8, and we are told the following. Should come up anytime now. There we go. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. There's something more imminent in your life than a house fire or than anything tangible that may happen to you. You and I have an enemy, and he seeks whomever he must have to devour. And so that, if nothing else, should cause our antenna to go up. It should cause a, a level of vigilance to know that we have a dangerous enemy that seeks our destruction. But what we've also been learning throughout this series is that we serve a God who has given us every resource, not just to resist that enemy, but to overwhelmingly conquer him. 
And so over the last several weeks, we've looked at what it means to wear the belt of truth. We've looked at what it means to don the the breastplate of righteousness and what that looks like uh, applied in our own day. Today, we look at another piece of armor, and you'll see it here in in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. There's a lot there. Soldiers in this day wore these hobnail shoes. You really can't see it from up here. This is what the shoes looked like, but underneath them were these, these hobnails. It's probably the, the earliest and most direct forerunner to what we would call cleats, something you would wear on a, on a soccer field or, or on a football field. And the reason that they were under there was to give that soldier sure footing because sometimes the battleground undulates. And sometimes there's rocks. And sometimes you're having not only to stand your ground, but you're having to do it against an enemy who's coming against you with firepower. And so those hobnails underneath would help to give you a sure footing. And so here's what Paul's saying in context of of, of Ephesians chapter 6. He's saying we need truth that our minds and our lives are purified from falsehood. We win this battle only by standing on the word of God and living its truth. That's what we learned in week number one. We need righteousness symbolized in the breastplate because we advance only by going where our commander tells us to go and not by diverting from his orders, which means we've got to consistently make right choices, righteous choices in our lives, whether it has to do with a relationship or how we spend our money or or whatever it might be in life. And against this enemy, we also need to get our shoes on. That's what we're going to talk about today. Because God's call for us in spiritual warfare is a call to vigilance. Vigilance. you got to be aware. I have a dear friend who's a pastor in the Atlanta area. And prior to that, he was in law enforcement. He's got SWAT training. He's got some paramilitary background. And they had a, a color coding for which they used to describe the various levels of awareness when they were talking about either fighting an enemy or just kind of standing on the street corner, keeping watch, you know, walking a beat, whatever it is. And I'm sure every agency's got their own uh, system for this. Uh, But my friend described it in this way, beginning with what he called condition white. Condition white level awareness means, in my friend's uh, region, it means no awareness. You're just clueless. How many of you ever went to the mall or Walmart or some other place of business with a huge parking lot? You were so focused on what it was that you came there to get and you retrieved the item. And the minute you hit the door and you looked at the parking lot, and that was the moment you realized, I have no idea where I parked my car. Condition white. Yeah, no awareness. Yeah, now, no one, that, that can be an annoyance when it's something as menial as I forgot where I parked. Because for most of us, we have one of those clickers now. And so we'll just annoy other people in the lot by hitting the thing and, and, and just, you know, moving toward the honking horn. But when it comes to spiritual or other kinds of warfare, it's actually dangerous to be in condition white. If you have no awareness of what's going on, if you're not paying attention, which is why my friend said we were trained to always maintain from the moment we clock in, whether or not there's an imminent threat to be at what he called condition yellow. So you're not paranoid, you're not looking for a demon under every rock, you're not expecting every pedestrian that comes along to pull a gun on you or try to attack you, but you're aware of your surroundings. You're relaxed, but but you're aware, okay? So if you've ever been in line, say, at a convenience store, and there's a law enforcement officer right in front of you, if you, you, you may notice if you get a little bit too close, he's still relaxed. He's not pulling around, drawing down on you, but, but he's, he's going to glance backwards a little bit. He may shift his stance just a little bit. His hand may move back toward his service weapon. He's not panicking, but he knows you're there. Condition yellow. 
you need to be in condition yellow so that if there is something in your gut that tells you that there's a, a threat that might be there, you can move to condition orange. Condition orange is there's something that doesn't feel right about this situation. So whether you're in law enforcement or military, paramilitary, or whether we're just talking about this context of spiritual warfare and fighting my enemy, I, there are going to be times when I sense the presence that something is just not right and my antenna need to go up a little more and I need to get prepared for what could come next, which my friend describes as condition red. This is when I've identified a definite threat I have personified that threat, and I have prepared myself mentally and otherwise, if necessary, to go to war with that other individual. And if I don't get to that point quickly enough, and that individual comes upon me and attacks me, I'm going to move to what my friend's department called condition black, which just means chaos, a complete out-of-control situation. Now, here's what I'm going to submit to you when I think about scales like that. I'm going to submit that most Christians, particularly in America, walk around spiritually in condition white. We have no idea what's going on behind the veil, and we don't care. We're too busy going to Starbucks. We're too busy thinking about that next vacation. We're not vigilant enough, and so when those trials and, and tribulations come in our life, we're not ready for it, and we proceed very quickly through all those steps to yellow, to orange, to red, and then to black. And typically that looks a couple of different ways. One way is you might instantly appeal to, to the tangible. And, and there's some great tangible resources to help us with needs when they come our way. But when you look at those alone to solve anything, you end up in trouble. The other thing that you're prone to do if you're not ready, if you're not vigilant, is to default to hopelessness. Some of you may be there this morning. Angst fills your heart. You find that you're always in a state of anxiety. You may be angry the way Job was when everything happened to him. I wonder if Job wasn't in condition white when all those things begin to attack. And here's the point. Every day you get up and spiritually you get your shoes on. You get ready. You are vigilant because these things are coming. Some of you know this well because those things have already happened. Some of you are walking around in condition white because you haven't had a problem, and those moments are coming. Sickness is coming. Death is coming. Tribulation is coming. Financial tightness is coming. Marital discord is coming. Kids that break your heart. All that stuff eventually is coming for most of us. Here's the good news. God provides these spiritual shoes and they contain an offensive weapon, a highly potent weapon, an always successful weapon called the gospel. Now in Romans, Paul describes that message in, in this way. He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Peter tells us in Matthew 16 that that gospel surrounds the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him and said, okay, on this confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You get a sense of the, the power and the potency of this message in those texts. And so putting your shoes on, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 6, 
means that in a world of spiritual war, God has given us the good news, the power that overcomes it all. Look at this text again in Ephesians 6. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And here's what I, what I want you to see about this text. It actually repeats a pattern that we see throughout both testaments. The, the most immediate corresponding text to this one is in Romans 10, 15. You can see that as well. How are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? You notice that? Association of the feet. Do you have your shoes on? There's an association of the feet with the carrying of a message. In this case, the most powerful and wonderful message that's ever been preached in the history of humanity. And so this passage, along with its counterpart in Ephesians, are deeply rooted in another passage. It's the one we heard read to us at the outset of our time of worship this morning. It comes from the, the, the 52nd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Because we're going to understand what Paul means in Ephesians. We have to go back to where that pattern first began and where, it is, where we find its root. Isaiah 52.7. Isaiah speaks from the 8th century, so it's about 750 years roughly before the time of Jesus. But he's speaking to a group of people who are going to be living about 200 years later. So it's folks that haven't uh, been born yet. And these are people because we were able now to look back on this history and see who these people were, they're going to be people who are standing in Israel looking at a destroyed temple and a defaulted, defunct uh, sacrificial system, their livelihoods ended, and their freedom taken away. And it is in that context, not a context of joy, not a context of financial prosperity, it's in that context of pain that the prophet gives this hope. Look at Isaiah 52, 7 again. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. I mean, some of you are living this right now, right? You're in the middle of something, whatever it might be, and you're like, I need some good news. And if you're not there, you've been there. And if you're not there and you haven't been there, you're headed there. Let me assure you. This sinful world is full of all manner of trial and tribulation. And we need an Isaiah in that moment to say, there is good news. What is that good news? He goes on and he says, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, what is that good news? Here's, it's encapsulated in three very simple words. Your God reigns. Yeah, some of you have gone through unspeakable tragedy and you need to hear today that your God reigns. You need to stop looking at the circumstances around you and expecting them to get better because they may or they may not. But regardless, your God reigns and your hope is to be found there. That's the passage that we're going to look at today. Two boys got in trouble throwing rocks at the side of a church building until they hit a stained glass window. In case you didn't know, those things are very expensive to replace. And so uh, they, they were caught I don't know if it was on camera or whatever, but the pastor was, was trying to get these two boys to at least admit what they'd done. And so he calls them both in, sits them on a bench right outside his office. He says, I'm going to take you in one at a time and give you the opportunity to tell me the truth about what happened. Well, before, he get, before either one of them go in, they made a pact with each other. We ain't saying nothing, all right? We are taking the fifth. We are not going to incriminate ourselves. We're not saying anything. 
And the pastor, as he's trying to get ready for this, uh, decides to take a spiritual route. He's going to appeal to the omnipresence and omniscience of God. God is everywhere present. God knows everything. God sees everything. And try to use that to draw the truth out of the kids. You know, the Lord saw you do this. The Lord knows you did this. Just admit it to me in the face of the Lord who already knows it. But the way he began, it was a little bit clumsy. He brought that first little boy in, sat him down right, right across from his desk. And he looked at the young man and he said, young man, do you know where God is? Silence, because they had a pact. Young man, I ask you a question. Do you know where God is? Nothing. Finally, he's exasperated. He sends the little boy out and he says, send, send your buddy in here. Let me see if I can have better, better luck with him. So his buddy's been sitting out on the bench this whole time and all of a sudden he looks up and here comes his buddy. His eyes are this big. You could tell he's just frightened. He's scared out of his mind. And he looked at me and said, man, what's wrong? Are we going to be held responsible for that, for breaking that window? And, and his other buddy went, oh, no, man, don't forget about the window. This ain't about no window. This is far worse than I ever thought it would be. God's missing, and they're blaming us for it. <laughs> Sometimes you can, you can have circumstances in your life and make you wonder, can't you? Where's he at? Where's he at? What we see in Isaiah 52, connected with this challenge to get our shoes on, is to remember he is not missing. Whatever you feel right now, the reality is your God reigns. Let me show you four characteristics of these shoes that Paul describes in Ephesians and that Isaiah describes so vividly. The shoes that we should put on to wage war. Here's, here's the first thing. They are lovely. They are lovely. Verse 7 again says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now, I have to admit to you, that, that causes some cognitive dissonance with me because when I think of feet, beauty just doesn't come to mind. All right? They're there to make sure you're planted, right? Especially, can I say this? Especially dude's feet okay we have a we have a rule in the office here at the church one because there's just a, a certain amount of professional decorum that ought to accompany anybody that's working in an office and if you come in during the week and we're not in business suits we're rather casual but you can get too casual can't you and so uh, there, there's some rules for that but but the the when it comes to the feet i've got my own personal rule i've just pulled rank executive just because joel said it men who are on our staff are not allowed to wear flip-flops in the office. They're not. I don't care if the women do it, but the men are not allowed. You can call that sexist, you can call it whatever, whatever you want, but I dropped that rule. You know why? Because I know, including, this is true for me as well, dudes' feet are big, they're hairy, and they're ugly, and I don't want to look at that while I'm working. I don't. So when I think of feet, and then I look at this passage, how beautiful, I'm like, what does this mean? Well, it's a reference to messengers who were running from an ancient battlefield. We get an example of this in 2 Samuel 18. David is waiting for news from the battlefront, and he told the watchman, if the, if the messenger comes back alone, it will be good news. Because when you're tired and bloodied and you feel like giving up as a soldier, there really is nothing more beautiful than a pair of feet running towards you, reminding you that the victory has been won. And this is what Isaiah 
is, is trying to communicate to both to these people, but also to you and to me. Sometimes you just need a reminder in the midst of whatever you're going through, hey, we win. We win. And when you're discouraged, nothing's more beautiful than the reminder that regardless of my circumstances, my sin has been broken, my soul has been redeemed, and I am free. I am free. And so when Paul says, put your shoes on, that's what he's talking about. Shod your feet with that truth. A truth that there's nothing more lovely than this declaration of victory. Secondly, these shoes have content. And that content involves two things that in this context, the Israelites haven't seen in a long, long time. The first is something called peace. Who publishes peace, the prophet says. That Hebrew term encompasses all kinds of things. It's not just detente. It's not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of justice. Okay? We're actually going to do a series on justice. What does it mean for the church to be people of justice? That Hebrew word is mishpat, and it has all manner of meaning that we're going to talk about for about eight weeks together. But mishpat itself is under that broader umbrella of shalom, the word that is here translated peace. And peace simply means not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of mishpat, of justice. It means everything that encompasses safety and security, both at a personal and at a societal level. And I want you to think about that for a minute, because that's the message that is brought to a people who've had their homes taken away from them, their temple destroyed, their sacrifices canceled out, their whole country's been taken away from them. Can you imagine the assurance that came from this word in the middle of all of that, they hear this word, shalom. How beautiful are the feet who brings the good news which contains peace. Peace. Having your shoes on means having the vigilance, being at a level of spiritual vigilance, so when these attacks come, you can relax and you can say, I have peace in the middle of all this. Like Horatio Spafford, when he lost his entire family at sea, and he had, the, he had a, a ship that he'd hired out carry him to the spot where the, the ship that was carrying his wife and his daughters went down and broken before the Lord. Sometimes we think there's no place for sadness. You've never read the Psalms if you think that. Or if you think somehow you're, you're breaking some rule of Christianity if you, if you cry or if you're in pain and you, you express that in some way, this, this guy begins to just overwhelmingly express his grief over the side of that ship. And out of that came the following lyrics that we continue to sing to this day. When peace like a river attendeth my way and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. This is the the peace that Isaiah speaks about. And that is coupled with something called happiness. Now, don't confuse what the, old, what, what the Scriptures define as happiness with the way we think of happy today. Always a smile, always jubilant. No, no matter what's going on around me, this is what happiness means. It means I have the good news of Jesus, and I know on the basis of that, I am favored. So whatever's happening with my marriage, whatever's happening with my kids, whatever's happening with my job, whatever's happening with my finances, whatever's going on, I'm not focused on that. 
I find my peace from something above that, something that transcends that, something that will outlast that. Because I got news for you. Even if you stay rich, healthy, and happy for your entire life, eventually you're going to die. Okay? So if your hope is in that, you're sunk from the beginning. It's got to be in something that transcends that. That's what this means. Good news of happiness means I am favored. There's a trend afoot in the Western church. It started within the confines of the prosperity gospel, but somehow it's kind of leaked out. It's this movement that teaches that, that you just, when you're in the middle of something bad, you just need to declare that things are different. So if you're sick, declare that you're well. If you're poor, declare that you're rich. And, and somehow that changes your, your situation. Well, that's not, that's not what the scripture teaches. That's foreign to what Isaiah is talking about here. He's not telling these people to declare that there's anything different in their surroundings than what's already there. What he is telling them to do is to make a declaration regarding something that is outside, transcendent of, and outlasting of all of those things. I, I think of it this way. I've, I've got a philosophy course that I'll be teaching online at a university in my home state, comes up in just a couple of weeks. And, and so in the online format, if you've ever taken an online class, you know that you go in and if you're using Blackboard or Canvas or, or, or one, of those other, uh, one of those other systems, you, you know that your professor has to go in and he has to down upload the, the course content. All right, so I just finished up the syllabus a couple of days ago. Here's the thing, though. That course content, myself, along with a few other colleagues, we, we wrote all of that three semesters ago. And so what, what I'm not going to do in a couple of weeks is, is type in all of that content again or try to produce new content. All I'm going to do is import the content that's already been written. Okay? And this is the danger that we face. Sometimes we think when we're in the middle of bad situations that wearing the shoes of the gospel means I've got to create new content. No, the content is the content of the gospel. You don't need to create new content. You just need to import that which is already done. Or put another way, you don't need to try to declare something in the future, brothers and sisters, that may or may not happen. In the midst of your trials and tribulations, you need to declare what's already happened. The Lord has given his blood. The Lord is risen from the dead. The Lord is coming again. Your circumstances don't mean squat compared to that, and neither do mine. And so if we can hang on to that hope, that's the content of the gospel. It's lovely. It has content. Thirdly, it has a main point. What is it that brings beauty to feet? What is it that does that? It is that they bring salvation. By the way, the Hebrew word that's translated salvation here, you know what it is? Yeshua. The New Testament writers would translate it Jesus. This is what the main point is all about. All of the wholeness, the soundness, the genuine peace is made possible through a salvation that comes from above us. Wearing the shoes of the gospel of peace means that in every part of my life, I remember what matters most. And it's not the size of my bank account or the quality of my relationships or the, the, the security of my job. All of that means nothing. Like I said, even if I keep all of that until I die, I'm still going to be dead dead right in the words of the great theologian monty python you will quite simply be dead so if i lose it or if i keep it does it really matter at the end of the day 
my great hope is that no matter what I have going on in my life, I have salvation. Yeshua, Jesus. I don't need anything else. I have salvation. Brothers and sisters, the enemy can do a lot to me. And we've already seen, Jesus says this to Peter, Satan has demanded my permission to sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, which is his way of saying, I told him, I let him off the chain, I told him to have his way with you. Obviously, this happened to Job. We see this in Job's life. Everything's been taken. The enemy is capable of, under the authority of a sovereign God, doing anything to me that he did to Peter, anything to me that he did to Job, and maybe even more. He could take a member or all of my family from me. He could take my livelihood from me. He could take my health from me. He could even take my life from me. Where does my hope come from in the middle of a situation like that? From one place. That there's one thing he cannot take, and it is the thing that not only matters most, it is the thing that defines all of the other things. He cannot take my soul. He cannot take my relationship with Jesus. He cannot take my salvation, which means, brothers and sisters, no matter what he does to me, I win. I win. But you don't know that if you're not vigilant and if you're not putting on the gospel of peace. They have a main point. They're lovely. They have content. Finally, something weird about these shoes. You know, in most cases, it doesn't do you a lot of good to have a pair of shoes if you've got nothing to plant them on. But these shoes create the ground that is underneath them. These shoes that I'm called to wear are a life that boldly declares the kingship and rule of God over all things. In ancient warfare, those back from the lines, they waited on this messenger wearing these shoes in the appearance of a tired, battered, beleaguered group of soldiers on the horizon, signified loss. Sweet victory was signaled by one man, not slouched over, but up straight, not walking or hobbling, but running, coming over that hill with a shout of triumph. Your God reigns. When Paul says, having shod your feet with the gospel of peace, this is what he's talking about. You cannot be beaten if you're wearing this. So let me ask you three questions. And they're pretty simple. The first one is this. Do I stand in the sure footing of the gospel? The sure footing of the gospel. There is a trend growing within the American church that you'd have to be asleep to miss. Followers of Jesus are increasingly on this continent. This is what makes me crazy. It's like I've been to places where poverty is actually an issue. I've been to places where religious freedom is actually an issue. I've been to places where you can lose your life for following Jesus. That's an issue. In the, in the freest, most prosperous nation on the planet, followers of Jesus are increasingly filled with fear. Have you noticed that? Fear. Particularly as we look around and we see changes. I mean, a generation ago, the church, Christianity as a whole, held much more prominence in society at large, at least the cultural form of it, if not the real thing. And we recognize that. Today, in many corners of, the, of our own culture, we are a marginalized people. 
And it's like we can feel the ground underneath us moving. You feel it? Have you felt that? I have. That ground is, is moving. And in times like that, the temptation, particularly if you're not aware, all right, you're in condition white, and then all of a sudden you turn around, this thing is happening on the, on the world scene that just shocks you, and you progress very quickly and very rapidly toward chaos. And all you're doing is reacting in a paranoid fashion to all these things that are around you. And you're looking for some way to feel secure. The closer we get to 2020, the more of this we will see in people who seek it through the acquisition of political power, like the zealots in the first century. You don't think like me, vote like me, you're the other, you're the enemy. Listen, that's an antichrist position. Be you a conservative or a liberal, it does not matter. You don't treat human beings created in the image of God like that. Some of you will do it through isolationism, like the fundamentalists did from almost their inception all the way up to the present day. You just, I'm, I'm going to put myself in a bubble. I'm just going to leave. To do those things is to, is to choose to walk around barefoot. Because neither of those things are going to protect you. They're just not. Ephesians 6, it's accompanying passage in Romans 10, and its root here in Isaiah 52 are there to remind us, especially during these kinds of times, that the only sure ground we have is Jesus. He publishes salvation, Yeshua, Jesus. See, this is the issue. It's, it's, not that, it's not that our culture doesn't believe in Jesus. It's that we don't. At least not in any real sense, because if we're reacting out of paranoia, We've forgotten that the hymn writer said, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground. Here's the great news. When you actually wear the shoes of the gospel of peace, you can stand with certainty, even as those tectonic plates of culture are clashing into each other. You can stand immovable on moving ground. But you have to become convinced that Jesus is enough. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I still believe it. You can test it. See, your pastor could be wrong, but he's probably not. You can test it over the coming weeks and months and years. I, I think we're going to feel this tension. I, you, know, you know what I think has caused this, this culture? I mean, we can, you can blame all kinds of other people, blame other religious groups. You can, we love to blame Muslims and gay people in the evangelical church. That's our default, right? We can blame, look on the outside, or we can look inwardly and understand that the sovereign Lord has put us in a vice because we refuse to believe that Jesus is enough. I don't need more power. I don't need more cultural influence. I don't need more money. I have what I need. That's what it means to stand in the sure footing of the gospel. When will Jesus be enough for some of you? You won't find joy until you find that. When will he be enough? Here's the second question. Do I live as though the gospel is true? In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of a landowner who entrusts three of his servants with varying degrees of oversight. Five talents to one, two to another, one to the last. The first two immediately go to work, and they are leveraging the resources that have been given to them, and by their master's return, they have doubled their investment. And so at the end of that parable, he commends them, he rewards them, but the third servant, he went out and buried what he was given. Had he been living in the 21st century, Jesus would have returned to see this guy stocking up on ammo and canned goods in his basement. 
and he's trying to explain himself. All right. Why is it that I haven't leveraged what you've given me and turned it into something more? Why is the only thing I have left to give to Jesus a dirty jar in one hand and a shovel in the other? And he tells us, he tells us in that parable that the man said the following, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew what the expectation was. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. You notice the cause of all of this? Three words. I was afraid. You serve Jesus. Did you eat paint chips as a kid? This is... I was afraid... Three words kept this man from doing what his master expected. How many stand willingly in the midst of the spiritual battle in which we currently find ourselves, barefoot and afraid? How many of us, like Peter in the storm, are looking at the waves and the wind rather than the Savior who, strangely and crazily enough, has called us to step out into the middle of it? I'm just waiting on the storm to pass. I'm just waiting on the storm to pass. Jesus called Peter into the storm you ever considered that he might do the same for some of us that there might be something there that makes us better as followers of him to wear the shoes of the gospel means that you live as though it is actually true which means you'll trust in his power to save you so do i stand on the sure footing of the gospel do i live as though the gospel is true and here's number three in case there's some of you who are still feeling comfortable and i haven't hit you yet do I declare the gospel in humble boldness? And sometimes we confuse boldness with cockiness or with arrogance. Boldness doesn't mean necessarily that you're arrogant. It, just, it may just mean that you're standing on the truth. If it's a humble boldness, it means this doesn't come from me. It was given to me by someone who was raised from the dead. There's my authority. I'm going to go share that with other people. We, we've been reading a book together at, at the exe executive staff meetings every week. Pastor David has been uh, leading us through it. And, I, and it's all together a really, really good, tangibly practical, very helpful book. Our staff has grown through it. Uh, but there was one statement in it that was very problematic. And it was toward the end of our time together reviewing it. It was a supposed quote by St. Francis of Assisi that said this, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Okay. Now, a couple of our staff, and I won't name them, and, and because usually I try to, even if, even if I hear something problematic coming out of the mouth of one of our staff, I try not to immediately correct it. That's not always the best way, and I understand that. Um, but I had a couple of them, that were, oh, isn't that beautiful? Oh, isn't that wonderful? And I just, I don't know. I just, my response was, no, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And they don't express shock at me anymore. They're used to me by now. But it's the dumbest thing I've ever... Number one, St. Francis never said that. You can't find anywhere where he said that except on some Facebook meme somewhere. And shocker, those aren't historically accurate. Okay? The trouble with quotes from the internet is that you never know if they're accurate. I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said that. The last time I looked at a Facebook meme. And so th this is our issue. If necessary, use words. 
Romans 10 says this, how will they hear without someone proclaiming to them? Hebrews reminds us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The message of victory, that that messenger, he doesn't just run. He doesn't just set an example. He speaks. He says, your God reigns. And I, I know this is tough. I know not everybody's an extrovert. I know it, we live in a culture that thinks it's you know, taboo to talk about anything religious. I know we live in a culture that thinks that there's your truth and there's my truth and that's good for you, but I don't know that it's good for me. And so just keep that out of the conversation. And yet in the middle of all of that, we are still commanded to speak. So just get ready, church. I mean, in late fall, I'm going to be in a series on sharing your faith. Very simply entitled, Who's Your One? It's just going to be a very simple challenge for you to pick a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. I don't want them to make, I don't want you to make them their, your project. I don't want it to be anything like that. And we're going to do everything we can to ensure that that doesn't happen. They're going to be your friend. Like many of my friends who follow other religions and many of my atheist and agnostic friends, they know I'm always there for them. They know I'm going to love them. They know my friendship's not conditioned. But at the same time, they know my greatest desire is that they come to know Jesus. Is that your greatest desire for your friend, for your family, for your coworker, for your neighbor? Because as I look at the number of people who share the gospel, I mean, who actively talk about their relationship with Jesus with other people, I just don't believe that that's our greatest desire. And so we're going we're gonna to spend some time, about eight weeks, talking about what it means to share your faith, the commands of Jesus, the theological underpinnings of all of that. And in your small groups, every single one of them, you go, well, I don't know if my small group is going to do it. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Because your small group is not as important as your church. You still love me? Yeah. You, you, you're going to get into this. You're going to practice this together. There's going to be some training so that there's no excuses anymore. Anybody will know how to share their faith. We will help you do it. And the reason for that is quite simple. If you really stand in the gospel of peace, if you really have those shoes on and you're able to stand firm, even as the ground underneath you shifts, if that is your reality, how in the world would you not want everybody else in your sphere of influence to have that experience? How would you not want to be? Seriously, folks, how bad do you have to hate your neighbor to keep that from them? And so we're going to be talking about that. We haven't talked about evangelism a lot, even really since I've been here. We're going to get, a, we're going to get the fire hose turned loose on all of us come late fall. So just, just get ready. It's coming. These shoes are given so that you can stand in the gospel and others can hear it. I mean, imagine with me a church that is full of people for whom when sickness ravages the body, when death takes a loved one, when those tectonic plates of culture shift, when the marriage hits rocky waters, when the kids break our hearts, and when the job comes to an end, we can stand in the middle of all of that, not focused on that and hoping it changes so much as in the middle of it, saying with a surety that makes us look freaking crazy to the world, your God reigns. That's what Paul means. When he speaks about wearing the shoes of the gospel. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is Lord over the whole earth and every part of it. 
He gave his life for you. He rose from the dead. He sits in triumph over death, hell, and the grave. He he assures you and me that because I live, you will live also. And he has given to us not only his presence through the presence of his Holy Spirit, but he has granted to us the stewardship of the greatest and most powerful story that has ever been told in all of human history. A story that has the power to redeem. A story that has the power to heal. A story that has the power to restore what on earth are you afraid of get your shoes on let's pray together father thank you for the gospel thank you for the message of jesus death burial and resurrection thank you for giving us the opportunity to share it forgive us including me for those times where we have been silent and we should have spoken likely because myself like anybody else in this room has those moments in our lives where we're just walking around barefoot walking around without a lack of, with a lack of vigilance, a complete lack of awareness. Father, may that never be true of us again. May we honor you and glorify you in our response to wear the shoes of the gospel. I'm looking at this front row right now, Lord, and I'm seeing seat cards asking for prayer for our teens and our children. Last week, there was one for, for our team in Vietnam. Father, I'm thinking more specifically right now about those young people. No doubt in my mind that this coming week in Ocean City, they're going to have opportunities to share this great message with people that they may never see again. Lord, I pray you give them boldness and I pray that they would set the example for the rest of us, that our youth and our children would lead out on this, that we would see hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people to come to know Jesus, that they too would stand in the sure footing of the gospel of peace, that they too would publish salvation. Father, make us such a people. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.